I'm going to take you back several years now to time when Grace and I were just married. That goes back a while. And when we were first married, TVs were quite large. You, you probably remember they, they had these deep units. They were big boxes. There, there was no such thing as a thin screen. And also at that time, TV entertainment centers were a major piece of furniture. So when we first got married, we decided we needed to buy an entertainment center for this big TV that we had. And we discussed it uh, because this was really one of our first major furniture purchases after we were married. We discussed what we wanted and decided we wanted this half-wall unit that we could put our box TV on top of, and, and that's what we went looking for. Well, we went out looking to a furniture store, and the first store we worked into, we, we found a unit that we both really liked. It, it was on clearance, even. The, the problem was, it was not this half-wall unit we had discussed. It was this massive three-piece set. You, some of you, I'm sure, remember these three-piece sets. The center had a big TV place, and you had doors that you could close around the TV, and then you had big bookshelves on each side of it. It wasn't at all what we looked at or uh, talked about. So it was there on clearance. We both liked it. We said, this is really nice, but Grace wanted to buy it. She's like, it's, it's, we like it. Let's buy it. It's on clearance. And now, I, I know I'm talking a bit of a foreign language to young people here. I want you to imagine there was no Amazon. We couldn't just order it. There was no internet even. So, so we couldn't look these things up in advance. You had to walk into a store. So I, I point out, this is the first store that we went into. This is not what we talked about. I'm being the responsible new husband. We also being the, the one that is probably more conservative, at least at that time, with our money. So I did the responsible thing. I refused to let her buy it on the spot. I reasoned, you know, there are a lot of other stores to, to look at. We, we don't need to buy on impulse. We, we can approach this purchase thoughtfully. Well, Grace, being the, the good young wife that she was, she submitted to that, and we went about looking at our other stores. We went to a lot of stores. We spent several days. Everything we saw, we mentally compared to this first set, this this three-piece set that we saw, everything was compared to that because we both liked it. After several days, nothing else that we saw compared to that. So we decided, you know, let's change our expectations and let's go buy that set. Well, you can pretty much predict it had been on clearance. Now it's gone. So the, the set we wanted is no longer there. Well, we kept looking. Eventually, we found the exact same set, except it wasn't on clearance. Those of you that have been married long, long enough, or, or as I have now, you know, we're 30 plus years past that point, you can predict how this went. We found it. It's no longer on clearance. We bought it for a much higher price. And my wife has lovingly reminded me of that lesson <laughs> every time there's a purchase to make. It has justified many purchases over the, the years that we need to seize the opportunity when it's there. Well, this morning, Paul is going to essentially tell us that there are opportunities we need to seize when they are there. He is going to present these, this idea really as our Christian duty. We are to seize the opportunities that we have as a duty in Christ. 
Paul's letter to the Colossians has continually instructed us that that we are to place Christ in the center of our lives. Christ is to be our focus. In him we have new life. He is the source of that life. That makes him the focus of our lives. Focusing on Christ, making decisions based on his character, making decisions based on his instructions that he's left for us, that, that transforms us including our our thoughts and our actions, we are transformed, slowly becoming more like Christ. Last week, as we're working our way through the the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, we began the section that really wraps up this letter. We started his closing, and yet Christ remains central. The centrality of Christ remains central to Paul's thoughts, even as he concludes his letter here. So he closes out the letter with several final instructions for the church. Things that will help keep Christ in the center, help him remain the the focus of life as they seek to display Christ to the city that's all around them. Last week, the the direction that Paul gave us really was an inward instruction. It it was prayer. Prayer was a duty we discussed, and and it really has an inward focus. We are to focus on our own prayer life, and, and really within the community of the church, he was focusing on a concern there, that the prayer becomes, remains central to the church. Well, this week, we turn outward. As Christians that are experiencing the, the transformation of Christ, we interact with a lot of people outside this church. Christ's transformation in our lives, the, the change that he's making, the, the central focus of Christ in our lives, that should affect our interactions with others as well. Displaying Christ through our transformed lives is our duty. Today, Paul shows us we have a duty, a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. We just sang a song that highlights that. Our lives are to be for the sake of his name. We are to be proclaiming him. We have a duty. This morning, we're only going to consider two verses in this letter, but these verses tell us we have a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. Let's read our verses. We're picking up in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 4. Paul writes, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We have a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. In verse 5, we see that begins with we have a duty to display Christ with our lives. It starts with our lives. We have a duty that our life displays Christ. I mentioned last week that Paul gives several commands in this final part here and mentioned it already today. Here we have another command in verse 5. The New American Standard translates the command as conduct. Conduct. The, the word that Paul actually uses is, is the word that normally is the word walk. Of course, walk is a metaphor for how we live our lives, and that's why the translators are trying to make sure that we understand this metaphor is about our lives. It's not we physically go for a walk down the, around our communities. No, we live in our communities. We live our lives, and we're to live our lives in a certain way. So, conduct. Paul is reminding us, literally he's commanding us. This is another imperative. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. He is commanding us to live our lives in a specific way. Our actions, our behaviors, these must conform to the duties 
that, that Paul lays out in the remainder of this verse. <coughs> Specifically, Paul lists two things that, that we need to display through our conduct so that, that our lives display Christ. Two things. One, our life should display wisdom. I'm sure you see that there in the verse. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. We should conduct ourselves with wisdom, he says, toward outsiders. So before I talk about wisdom, I want to clarify outsiders. What does he mean when he says outsiders? Paul means unbelievers. It's that simple. Unbelievers. In Paul's day, all the Christians were in the one church. There's only one church in the city of Colossae. In Colossae. So all the ch- Christians are in this church he's writing to. They're the insiders. Everyone else is an outsider. He's writing to the church. There's letters being read in church, just like you're sitting here. If I talk about outsiders, I'm talking about people who are not in this room. Well, in Paul's letter to them, everybody not in the room are unbelievers. He's talking about unsaved people. The, the people that the Christians will interact with all week long if they go about their normal business. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's literally what he writes. So let's ask ourselves, what is wisdom? We use that word all the time, don't we? Wisdom, it's a word that's used commonly. Sometimes we we use the word and we mean that someone is really smart. He's wisdom. Sometimes we use it sarcastically that he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's a wise guy. But sometimes we just use it for someone who's really smart, knows a lot. Other times we use it for a person who is experienced, who who has experienced a lot, seen a lot. We might mean that this person is really discerning. This person sees through a lot. They they can see through falsehoods. They're, They're wise in that sense. There's a lot of ways we use the word. But how does Paul use the word? What does he mean when he says walk in wisdom? We have to remember, Paul is a man who is steeped in in biblical theology. He he was an Old Testament scholar. He was trained rabbinically, one of the foremost rabbinically trained people of his day. When Paul is going to talk about wisdom, he is going to think in biblical ideas. In fact, in the Old Testament that Paul was so familiar with, wisdom is a genre of literature. We talk about the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Paul uses wisdom in that sense. So we need to use the biblical definition of wisdom to understand what does Paul mean when he says walk in wisdom. Well, according to the Bible, there are two components that, that must unite to have wisdom. Two things that must come together. One, a person must know what God has said. In other words, we need to know his revelation. We need to know scripture. We need to know the facts of God's revelation. And in other words, know the Bible. Two, the person then needs to unite that with applying what God has said to the circumstances of life. You need to have practical application of God's truth to have biblical wisdom. A wise person, a person walking in wisdom, is a person who lives life according to God's will. That's biblical wisdom, according to what God has said. So how do we direct biblical wisdom toward outsiders? We're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. How do we do that? How do we direct this biblical truth to outsiders? Outsiders who 
know nothing about what the Bible says. They, they, and if they do know it, they're rejecting it. They do not believe what God has said. How do we determine what God wants us to do toward those who are outside the church? Well, we need to start, as I said, by determining what God has said. Now, we could turn to a lot of places and find really the same idea. It comes up all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Here's what God's desire is for those who are unsaved. Probably the most succinct place we can find it expressed is 1 Timothy 2.4, where God says, God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. What does God want from unbelievers? He wants unbelievers to become believers. He wants outsiders to become insiders. He wants them to know that Jesus died for them. That's what God's desire is. He wants them to not just know with their head that Jesus died for them, but understand that he did that so that their sins could be forgiven. That the fact that their sins are currently taking them to an eternal damnation in hell can be changed. Their destiny is not fixed in hell. It can be changed to be heaven if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who lived sinlessly and gave his life in their stead. That's God's desire for unbelievers. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. By the way, if you're here today and you don't have that knowledge, you've never understood what Jesus has done for you. You've never actually placed your faith in Jesus. You've never accepted it. In other words, you think you're still fine pleasing God through your own efforts. You're wrong. If that's you this morning... Talk to me afterwards. Come see me. There's my email address on the screen. Send me a note. We'll set up a time to get together. I'd love to share with you how you can know what outsiders need to know. Because even if you're sitting here today, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're an outsider. We'd love to have you be an insider. Talk to me. For us, we need to use this definition of wisdom from Scripture Understand what God has said that he wants for those who are outside and apply that to our lives. So if we, if we use the worldly kinds of definitions of wisdom, things like um, not be easily conned, a wise person is one who sees through falsehood, then we might think, well, as insiders, as Christians, we're not to let unbelievers con us through their, their rebellious deceptions and their falsehoods. In other words, don't be an easy mark. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, do what God says in your life. God says, I want people to know the truth. I want people to be saved. So we are to be living our lives for that purpose. The bottom line is Paul says we need to live our lives so that this transforming work of Christ is on display. The unsaved all around us can see there is something changing in us. There is something different. Not only do we need to have that happen, it needs to be the highest priority in our lives. When we're interacting with others, that's the main reason we interact. We need to live in a way that shows there is hope in Christ. We need to show them the, the joy that we have in Christ. We need to show that there's meaning to life because of Christ. 
In other words, we need to show what Christ is doing for us and make sure they know that he can do the same for them. So let me ask you. I see you here as an insider on Sunday. I see what you look like as you sit here. Does your life Monday through Saturday display Christ? Do people see hope and joy when they see you during the week? Do, do they see transformation in you? Do, do they know that, that Christ is transforming you? We have a duty to display Christ with our lives. Our duty should display wisdom. Paul also indicates here in verse 2 that our duty should display awareness. Awareness. That's the way I'm describing what Paul tells us in the last part of the verse. He, he, we have it here, making the most of the opportunity. Paul's indicating that we should display an awareness of all the opportunities that, that we have with unbelievers to display Christ. Think about situational awareness. That, that's a term that, that comes up often. There's a common phrase, situational awareness. Wednesday this week, um, Carl Gray, Jim Rice, and I were going to a, a seminar that, that's being put on by a federal grant entitled Protecting Your House of Worship. Now, obviously, we live in a day and age where security is a concern, so there's the seminar, and we're going to see what kind of ideas we might have that could aid us in that regard. Now, I don't know all the things they'll teach us and talk about, but I'm sure they'll talk about situational awareness. Part of the, the way to ensure security is being aware of what's going on and, and spot potential problems before they develop. Because if you spot a potential problem, you can influence the way it develops. Well, that is somewhat the idea that Paul's expressing here in verse 5. We need to have awareness of what is happening so that we can direct our interactions with outsiders in a wise fashion. The King James Version, if you have that today, it translates... Paul's Greek a lot more literally than the New American Standard does. Paul literally writes, redeeming the time. That, that's the manner in which we're to walk in wisdom. We are to redeem, or, or you could even write, buy up the time. We are to buy it up. We are to redeem it. I, I remember several years back when some of the ladies in, in our church got the rose bushes there now in the, the central island out front. It, it was at the end of the years, and one of our ladies stumbled on some clearance plants that were really cheap. I mean, these plants maybe was a stretch. They were not much more than a stick at that time. But they were being clearance, probably because they were only a stick. And the lady knew this was a great opportunity. And unlike me with the, the furniture shelves, she didn't make that mistake. She bought up the opportunity, bought every plant they had. And now we have beautiful bushes over many years that have grown at least they were beautiful this year till the Japanese beetle came, and that's a different issue. We have a relatively short life. We have a relatively short life. Even if we live to what's considered an old age, those of you that are getting closer and closer to that age, people would consider an old age, recognize this a short life. The older I get, the shorter I realize it is. That means that, that we have limited opportunities to impact people around us. We have limited opportunities to do our duty, to impact the unsaved in this world. Limited, but we do have opportunities. 
God gives us opportunities. The question is whether we have sufficient situational awareness to spot the opportunities he gives us, to, to make use of them before they disappear. We need to spot opportunities. But we also need to have an awareness of our situation so that we don't squander opportunities. Gospel opportunities take time to develop. It, it takes time for people to see the transformation in our lives and, and to understand that, that what I see happening here is actually Christ changing this person. It takes time for to recognize that, that what we have is worthy of their investigation. The gospel takes time. We need to make sure we're not squandering our opportunities. I've lost track of how many times over the nearly 30 years now that I've, I've been in our church where I've seen people work for years to get family members to listen to them about Christ. They, they, they've shared the gospel with their family members. They've invited their family members over for a meal and they've invited church members to come alongside so that their family members could get to know a church person and, and see that I'm not unique. There's others where Christ is doing this as well. I, I remember how over years people have invited their family members eventually to come to some event that we're having here to, to darken the doors of this building and to, again, see that Christ does this for everybody that accepts him. He changes everyone. I remember times where people have expressed increasing joy because their family members actually come to a service. And then I've watched these same people leave the church because something has happened. Something has, has come up that has gotten them upset usually something that's relatively inconsequential, especially if you compare it to the salvation of an eternally damned person. It's something inconsequential, but they've left the church rather than resolve the, the issue biblically. What these people fail to, to recognize is that leaving the church for a reason that, frankly, is readily understandable to their unsaved family member, because if you think about it, unsaved, they're used to being affronted by a lot of things. Offense is easy when you're unsaved. Being upset and, and angry and storming off over something that, that's easily understandable to an unsafe family member. Conflict is natural as breathing. But they fail to recognize that when they do that as a Christian, it undoes all the gospel progress they've worked so hard to develop through the church. Friends, redeeming the time, situational awareness, that, that means we recognize that all of our actions reflect on our gospel witness. We can destroy our witness so quickly by, by simply responding in a manner that, that reflects what is natural rather than what is supernatural. We have a duty to display Christ with our lives. Our lives should display awareness. We have this duty, a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. Verse 5 tells us that, that we have this duty to display Christ with our lives, how we live. Verse 6 continues the same idea by telling us that we also need to display Christ with our lips. We have a duty to display Christ with our speech. The, the end of verse 6 shows us that, that Paul really is elaborating the, the idea from the previous verse, so we know he's still talking about the unsaved by how he ends the verse. 
Our lives displaying Christ must be matched by our speech that displays Christ as well. And to do that, Paul gives us three guidelines in verse 6. Three ways that our speech needs to display Christ. One, our, our speech should display grace. Grace. Our former life, as chapters 1 through 3 of this letter have made clear, our former life was characterized by that sin nature, that, that old way of living. Our sin nature affected all of our life, including our speech. A sin, we've seen sin affects everything. We, it causes us to be angry and all kinds of things that flow out through our speech. Well, the same needs to be true of the new life. New life is to affect all of our living as well, including our speech. Our new life is characterized by grace. We have new life because of God's grace. Grace is transforming us. Grace is God's unmerited favor placed upon us. God is changing us. So our speech should reflect God's grace as well. It doesn't matter if it's casual conversation or if it's gospel witness. Just because we're not talking about Christ doesn't mean that Christ should not be affecting what we say. Our speech should always have a gracious quality to it. Friends, this, this is not a complicated idea. There is simply no excuse for our speech to ever take on harshness. We should not have a coarseness to our words. There, there's no room for cruelty in our speech. We have experienced the amazing grace of God. There is no excuse for us not to show that grace with our speech. Let your speech always be with grace. It's an absolute standard. Always. We're not given the option of justifying our failures. I did good until that person just got so under my skin I couldn't help myself. We're not given that option. The only option we're given is to call our failures what they are, sin. Now, I'm certain none of us have achieved the level of always with grace. But we have no excuse for failure. Some of us have probably failed to deal with our failures as sin. That's where the problem comes in. We will fail because we still have sin within us. But, but we try to excuse our sin rather than calling it out for what it is. This is sin when my speech does not reflect Christ. We need to confess our failures to God. We also need to confess our failures to those who were on the receiving end of our failures. Especially if they were outsiders or unbelievers. If we fail to display grace in our speech, we need to go up to the person and ask their forgiveness. We need to explain that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we strive to hold ourselves to a higher standard than what our recent words displayed. Why? Why do we do that? Well, because we've received the grace of God in our lives. God has poured out unmerited favor upon us. So now we have a duty to our Savior to reflect that unmerited favor to others. That's why I'm apologizing. That's why I'm asking for forgiveness, because I failed to reflect what I've received. Now, before I leave this point, let me point out that always with grace, it includes our families. Always is absolute. 
It includes our families. Sometimes we're least likely to show grace in our speech to our families because they're stuck with us. We know our family members will love us unconditionally, period. Their unconditional love is real. I'm not questioning that. But that doesn't change that a failure to show grace in our speech is still sin. We have a duty to display Christ with our speech. Our speech should display grace. Second, our speech should display attractiveness. Attractiveness. Paul writes that our speech needs to be, as it were, seasoned with salt. Well, salt was used for two things in, in Paul's day. One, it was a preservative. That, that's led some people to suggest that, that what Paul means here with these words is that our speech is to have preserving influence on society. Now, I think it's true that Christians should influence society in a preserving fashion. We should, as Christians, be standing against the degrading influence of sin. But I don't think that fits the idea of our context here very well. So let's look at the second reason they used salt in that day. The second reason was they, they used salt as a seasoning, as a flavoring on food. It, it made bland food attractive. We still use salt that way. I've dined with some of you that I know. Some of you are very much into the using salt as a flavoring. Lots and lots and lots of flavoring. I think that fits Paul's idea here very well. Our speech is to function like salt. We are to be attracting people to our ideas by the way we frame our speech. We are to attract people to the gospel message. We are to attract people through our Savior, and we do that through attractive speech. Now, there are endless ways that, that we can go about making our speech attractive. For example, we simply need make it, having a conversation with us interesting. We need to be interesting people. That we certainly want to share Christ with others. But you know, you will rarely get the chance to share Christ with others if Christ is the only thing you are willing to speak about. Think about it. Unbelievers, those outside of the church, think they have no interest in Christ. I say think because the reality is Christ is the answer to what they are most interested in. Their, their deepest needs are Christ, but not as far as they understand. As far as they understand, they do not have an interest in Christ. Their interest lies in, in all kinds of temporal things. We need to converse with people in an attractive manner about temporal things so that we gain opportunities to show them that Christ is the answer to the questions and concerns they truly have. Interesting conversations naturally open up chances for us to give gospel witness. But it starts by simply being interesting people. Uh, another example of attractiveness is our speech needs to demonstrate real love and concern for the person. I'm doing a lot of reading for, for a class that I'm auditing this, this fall in November. It, it deals with sexual identity and gender identity, gender issues. I'm auditing this class because this is a huge issue for us in our church. We need to be prepared to, to respond to it. It's going to be a huge issue for everybody living in this world. Well, one of the ideas that, that repeatedly comes up with every book I've read so far is that unless people are convinced we love them, we can never expect them to listen to how Christ loves them. It doesn't matter what the issue is. They need to know we love them 
before we can tell them that Christ loves them even more than we love them. Our speech needs to be attractive. There needs to be genuine love flowing through our words. Seasoned with salt. We have a duty to display Christ with our speech. Our speech, number two, must display attractiveness. Number three, our speech also should display discernment. Discernment. Paul is clear here at the end of verse 6 that how we interact with people, it varies from person to person. Every person is unique. It, it takes discernment to know how to respond to each person in each situation. Some people might need cold logic. Others we, we not, might need to have speech that is filled with emotion. Sometimes that emotion might be passionate, arm wavings. Think of the Italian communicating. Passion about everything. Stereotyped Italians, right, Jim? Sometimes we might need to use soft and gentle emotion. That kind, you know, that words are filled with many hugs. How we approach our speech changes, but our goal never changes. We want to share Christ. But we have to develop a, a verbal path that we can take to, to get to that goal that, that is unique to each person. With, with some people, it might be a very short verbal path. We might be able to get there in a conversation or two. With others, that path might stretch, stretch out over weeks and months and years. We need discernment. Discernment that's reflected in our words as we act with others. Now, the idea that you have discernment in how you speak to each person so that you can work for this goal that, that may seem overwhelming to you at first blush. How can I think through how I'm going to interact with each person? But let me remind you of the context of our verses. Simple context here, but we're in chapter 4, right? That means chapters 1 through 3 are already gone. 1, 2, and 3 we've looked at, and those chapters have all celebrated Christ. We got here to this point by being told all that Christ has done for us and all that he is continuing to do. We've been told again and again that we are to keep our gaze on him. That reminds us that we are doing none of this through our own power. Now let's draw into a little more close to the immediate context. Remember the verses that immediately preceded this, what we looked at last week, are verses about prayer. We are to devote ourselves to prayer. We are to persevere in prayer. Developing discernment for how we are going to have conversations with specific people and how we might use those conversations to get to the, the gospel message, that topic should form a large part of our prayer. After all, we're, we're not asking for natural discernment here. We're asking for spiritual discernment. We're looking for spiritual discernment, so we need the Spirit of God to enable us. We really can't do this any other way. So if we're overwhelmed, then we're in the right spot. But remember, we have the one who can help us get where he wants us to get. Our job is to display discernment through our conversations. We must rely on God to obtain the discernment. The main thing to remember is there is no cookie-cutter approach to display God to the world because there's no cookie-cutter people. Each person is unique. 
We're called simply to love and respond to each person with our speech, trying to show them that there is one who loves them more than we do. Number three, our speech should display discernment. We have a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. Verse 6 tells us that we need to display Christ with our speech. We have this duty, a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. Sharing the gospel of Christ with, with all the people he's placed around us, that, that is a recurring theme of Scripture. Sometimes it, it feels like that's the only thing we talk about because Scripture brings up over and over and over. It comes up so often because we're meant to conclude this is one of the primary things that we do as Christians. It's our duty. We have a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. It's easy to miss the opportunity to do our duty if we're not careful. As I said, I, said, I, I missed that opportunity when it came to buying that, that um, entertainment center. I had the opportunity and I let it go by. Friends, missing the opportunity to display Christ with the unsaved, that, that turns out to be so much more costly than missing the purchase of an entertainment center. If we miss the opportunity to share Christ with the unsaved, we miss the chance to have God gloriously use us to draw someone to salvation. There is no more glorious thing to do in our life than to rejoice as we see Christ take the spiritually dead and create spiritual life. If we miss the opportunity to display Christ, we may miss out as well on fulfilling one of the greatest duties we have as Christians. This morning, the duty has been laid directly at our feet. Paul's placed it right before us. We have a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. We're to display Christ with our lives. We're to display Christ with our speech. Tomorrow morning, well, technically, I guess we can say this morning, a new week is beginning. That, that means we have new opportunities lying before us. We, we may have failed in our duty in the past, but we can rededicate ourselves to doing our duty. We can resolve to do what our Savior expects of us to do this week and look for the opportunities that he gives us. We have a duty to display Christ to the unsaved. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be able to call you that because of the work of Christ. We are saved because we've been adopted by you through our faith in Jesus Christ. We've received the righteousness of Christ. We've received new life through the work of Christ. So, Father, we know that Christ really is the center of our lives. But having him as center of life brings duty with it. We have a responsibility because of all that we've received and the responsibility you've showed us so clearly today is we have a responsibility to share him with those who need to know him. So, Father, I pray that today you would encourage us, embolden us, and remind us to spend our week doing our duty. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.